Hello and welcome to the 7th edition of Victor's Corner. I am your host, Victor Romoyo, one-fourth of the Codex Prime podcast, and it is Thursday, April 28th, 2016, and I am very glad to be back with you all once again this week. Uh, Before we get into my film review of Miles Ahead, I want to give a special shout-out to the College Crusade of Rhode Island. The Crusade Alumni Board, we had a career alumni fair in which we met with uh, several high schoolers and middle schoolers from, you know, within the state of Rhode Island, and we all met at the Providence Camp of CCRI and us you know Crusade alums we had a chance to talk with the students about our experiences in college and beyond college and it was a pretty fantastic uh, experience to get to talk to the students and have them pick our brains as to you know what the college experience is like and what they can look forward to and um and it, it was it was just fantastic all around. So big ups to the College Crusade for organizing that event, and a big ups to my fellow panelists as well, who I had a chance to work with, and big ups to Karen Donovan for helping to organize the event as well. I saw a new film this past weekend, which happens to be the directorial debut of Don Cheadle, and it's a film called Miles Ahead, which happens to be the biopic of the legendary jazz musician Miles Davis. And the film stars Don Cheadle as Miles Davis, along with Ewan McGregor, Emma Yahtzee Coronaldi, Michael Stuhlbarg, and Keith Stanfield. And the story of the film is that it happens to be a fictionalized, free-form glimpse into the life of Miles Davis, and the film follows him at a low point in his, in his career in the 1970s, where he's struggling to get his career back on track while you know fighting a drug addiction, and at the same time holding on to a recording of his latest music that his label really wants from him. In particular, there's this shady manager named Harper Hamilton, played by Michael Stuhlbarg, who, who's just itching, just itching to steal that recording off Miles Davis however he can. And at the same time, there's this Rolling Stone journalist named Dave Brandon, played by Ewan McGregor, who desperately tries to get an interview with Davis. And all throughout the film, we travel back and forth through time from the 1970s to Davis's prime in the years prior. And we also see the unfolding of his tumultuous marriage with his wife, Frances Taylor, played by Emma Yahtzee Coronaldi. And Frances Taylor was a dancer whose own rising career becomes a point of contention in Davis's rise to stardom. So as you can tell, there's, there's already a lot going on in this film. And I have to say that Don Cheadle's directorial debut is quite a treat. And for the past 10 years, you know, since like 2005, 2006, Cheadle had been trying to get his long gestating biopic of Miles Davis off the ground. And he actually worked with uh, the late musician's family to come up with ideas for the project. And he was also struggling to find enough funding to make his movie happen. Uh, Cheadle not only stars in and directs the film, but he also co-wrote it along with us with a screenwriter Stephen Bagelman, who wrote the story for the Chadwick Boseman film Get On Up, in which Chadwick Boseman played uh, James Brown. And Cheadle raised uh, $370,000 off Indiegogo to complete financing uh, the film. And as far as that aspect of the production goes, there's more about that that I want to get into later on. Now, Don Cheadle has had a string of great performances over the years. Um, I think back to his breakout role in 1995 in that film called Devil in a Blue Dress, which stars Denzel Washington. 
uh, to Hotel Rwanda in 2004, which was Oscar nominated. Uh, Talk to Me in 2007, co-starring uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor, along with his starring role in the Showtime TV series House of Lies, which is uh, pretty popular on that on that network. And here in Miles Ahead, Don Cheadle's unique take on Miles Davis is yet another knot on that on that long string of great performances. What's interesting about his character is that. His interpretation of Miles Davis is like this walking clash of contrasts. You know, he's cool yet volatile. He's charismatic yet profane. And he's a loving yet unfaithful husband. You know, there's a lot of contradictions that you see in his character all at once. And throughout it all, you get to see the man behind that self-assured and cool as ice persona that we know Miles Davis to have. And we see scenes of Miles Davis, the musical genius at work, you know, crafting his music with various musicians in studio. And we also see the man at his lowest point, you know, kind of mired in drugs and wallowing in self-apathy. And he's, and, he's, and he's really trigger happy, too. Like, he's really quick to pull a trigger on some irritating record label executives begging for his latest music. And I thought that was pretty, that was a pretty jolting thing to see. Because when you we see a guy like Miles Davis who's so calm and collected, and you hear that through his music, just to see him just real quick to just like pull a revolver out and start shooting, you know, to get his point across. Not not not, not that he kills anybody, but you know, it's just you know his his way of you know getting his, you know, make, making his indignation known. You know, it, it's 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 normal. It's normal. Not really though. Not really. <laughs> But uh, but but beyond but besides those you know you know cool as ice and really volatile you know uh, moods that we see him in, we also see glimpses of Davis's relationship with Francis Taylor, you know played by Emmyatsi Cornaldi, who's just so beautiful uh, in in this film. And what's interesting about her is that she brings this alluring confidence to her role that makes it quite easy to see why Davis was so taken with her. And there is one scene in particular that comes to mind where Davis finds this record cover of his 1961 piece, Someday My Prince Will Come, which has his wife Frances on the cover. And when he looks at the cover, when he looks at the cover, you know, the look on Davis's face just communicates everything you need to know. You know, all of the fondness and regret that he has told without words. And it's definitely a, a testament to Cheadle's uh, acting talent. Another thing that's really cool about Miles Ahead that I really dig is that it works because of its rather unconventional approach to the biopic genre. Now, you know, over the years, when you think of films like Ray and Walk the Line and um, and others, you know, you have this you have this template of what a biopic is, and this template was one that Cheadle had wanted to avoid. You know, he wanted to avoid a typical cradle-to-grave narrative that we've seen in so many other biopics where you see the humble beginnings to the rise to fame, to the drug-fueled downfall and the eventual redemption. You know, it's I know it's real life, but it's cliche at this point. And and Cheadle, what he actually wanted to do was he actually set out to avoid that, you know, cliched conventionality. So what he does is he actually sets up his film in the style of Miles Davis's jazz music, where he flips back and forth and sideways all throughout time. 
And it's a real testament to his talents as a filmmaker and screenwriter that none of it ever feels disjointed or confusing. You know, if you're seeing Miles Davis in the 70s to, you know, his prime in like the, the early 60s and 50s, back to the 70s again, and, you know, it, it all feels cohesive and you're never, and you're never lost. Now, the unconventionality of the film also yields some thoroughly entertaining results because it's part biopic, part romantic drama, part buddy comedy, to even a part gangster crime flick. And that sounds really weird, but bear with me. I mean, to paraphrase Davis in the film, he says, if you're going to tell a story, come with some attitude. And this film is most assuredly full of attitude with its uh, freeform approach. And... You know, in, in reference to the part buddy comedy designation, that's where that's where Ewan McGregor comes in, where he plays this journalist who's itching for this interview with Davis, and he's trying to dig deep in the jazz trumpeter's career and what he's up to in the present day. And McGregor and Cheadle play off each other so well that they seem to be like this harder-edged version of the odd couple. <laughs> and McGregor's character is equal parts earnest and shady. Because even though you see that he's not entirely on the level, he has enough likability that, much like Davis in the film, you do admire to a certain extent just how far he's willing to go to get the scoop. Um, another character that comes to mind is uh, Michael Stuhlbarg's role of Harper Hamilton. Michael Stuhlbarg, as you know from Boardwalk Empire and uh, most recently Steve Jobs, the film with Michael Fassbender. Uh, he's basically, his character is essentially um, just a... He's just a gangster in a suit who happens to sell records, basically. That, that's what his character is. And he seems to be the most fantastical element of the film. But he's, he, oddly enough, he still fits. And also, working alongside him is this soft-spoken, uh, upcoming or aspiring jazz musician named Junior, played by Keith Stanfield. And like, and him along with uh, Harper Hamilton, they're trying to get their hands on Davis's uh, latest recording that he's trying to keep away from the public guy. And you know, as I've said earlier, this whole film is a fictionalized take on Miles Davis, and part of that fascination is wondering just how much of what unfolds in the film is rooted in truth. And hey, and you know what? That's that, that's totally fine. You know, I'm not looking for a documentary um, on Miles Davis in this case. You know, I just want something that kind of speaks to the essence of the man. And that's what Don Cheadle was going for. And, it, 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 and for the most part, it works rather well. It's actually a pretty cool film from top to bottom. So overall, Miles Ahead is a very good film, and it shows that Don Cheadle is every bit as talented behind the camera as he is in front, and I'm quite eager to see future directorial projects from him. I mean, hey, considering the fact that uh, Ben Affleck you know, has been killing it in the director's chair for the past nine years, and he's set to direct a solo Batman film, on that note, I would really like to see what Cheadle can bring to the MCU as a filmmaker, as well as even more original and fresh content as well. So, you know, when all is said and done, I do recommend uh, for you guys to check out Miles Ahead if you do get the chance to do, to do so. And if you are interested in listening to Miles Davis's music, then I, I can recommend some notable albums of his that to get, to get you started. You should check out some albums such as Roundabout Midnight, uh, kind of Blue, which is considered his masterpiece. Bitches Brew, which features this really cool composition called Spanish Key. 
And he also had an album in the 80s called Tutu. And that's kind of like a mixture of like modern, modern for the 80s, uh, modern sound along with uh, Davis's style of jazz, which is a pretty cool mixture. Uh, so also uh, definitely check out Miles Davis's greatest hits from Columbia Records. And that's also an excellent introduction to his music as well. So yeah, miles ahead, man. If you, if you have a chance to see it, do so. Now, I mentioned earlier that there was more behind the financing of the film Miles Ahead that I really wanted to get into. This past February at the Berlin Film Festival, uh, Don Cheadle revealed that it took him about 10 years to get his film financed due to lack of interest from studios. So he had to take the crowdfunding route and he raised about $370,000. And he even used some of his own money to help finance his film. He went on to say that in order to even be able to get the film made at all, he had to add a white co-star, hence Ewan McGregor's role in the film. And what Don Cheadle said of the situation, he said, quote, This is one of the realities of the business that we're in. There was a lot of apocryphal, not proven evidence that black films don't sell overseas. Having a white actor in the film turned out to actually be a financial imperative." Unquote. So with that said, Cheadle had to revise his own script by adding McGregor's fictional character into the mix, which adds to that whole odd couple buddy comedy aspect of Miles Ahead that I mentioned earlier. Now in fairness to Ewan McGregor, he was terrific in the film. And the fact that the whole movie was mainly this fictionalized, unconventional take on Miles Davis, rooted in some truth, you know, I can see how adding another character to the mix could make things even more interesting. But, with that being said, the fact that an, that an actor of Don Cheadle's caliber had to even add a white supporting lead in order to get his film made at last annoys the ever-living shit out of me. I mean, even in 2016, we still have to contend with this nonsensical belief from Hollywood that so-called black films or films starring black leads don't make money. You know, Cheadle's situation in adding a white supporting character alongside the black lead to his film about Miles Davis, you know, that situation is anything but new, unfortunately. Because this speaks to the long-held idea that we've seen in media that quote-unquote whiteness, more specifically American whiteness, is the default universal standard for humanity. That audiences cannot relate to characters of color as much as they can with a white lead. You know, generally speaking, we've been long conditioned to assume that non-whiteness is, in some capacity, exotic or the ever-fabled other, you know, too different and otherworldly to be considered relatable to mass audiences, whatever the hell relatable is supposed to mean. Now, this is partly why you have this annoying label of quote-unquote black movies or Asian movies or Latino movies or insert non-white ethnicity here films. You know, if they dare to have one or more leading people of color at the forefront, whereas films with white leads or a mostly white cast never receive such a des designation at all. I mean, you, you don't think of a film like There Will Be Blood as a quote-unquote white film. 
It's just a film. Period. But a film like Dope, black movie. A film like uh, Maria Full of Grace, Latino flick. Rush Hour, black Well, no. A Asian? No. Uh, Blasian? Victor. Rush Hour is a Victor movie. There we go. Shit. Uh, side note, I do happen to enjoy the first two Rush Hour films. I never saw part three. But anyway, the point is, is that today we are living in an ever increasingly globalized society. You know, to have artists and creators face having to fulfill some sort of arbitrary racial quota established by some studio in order to sell tickets is deeply troubling and not to mention irritating as all hell. Every artist, be it filmmaker, writer, whatever, should be allowed to tell their own truths in their own work without having to compromise on some bullshit arbitrary grounds of universal appeal in order to validate the insulting belief that white audiences can only identify with white characters. Because if that were true, then I guess Marvel Studios should just go ahead and say fuck it and cancel Black Panther right now. Luke Cage? Nah, he has no fans. Scrap him. Blade? Well, let's look at Blade. He's a half-human, half-vampire badass. I mean, that is totally plausible. That I can get behind. But a black guy doing that? Come on, man. Don't be ridiculous, fam. <laughs> and how about this? Let's look at some non-comic book properties. Let's, let's look at the film uh, Beasts of No Nation, an excellent film on uh, Netflix. Would an outstanding film like Beasts of No Nation have benefited with a white leading role in a film revolving around African characters? Think about that. You know, in a globalized culture, you know, people want to see interesting, engaging content now more than ever. I know I do. You know, people generally want to see a diverse array of characters and roles. And regardless of race, what's cool is what's cool. And from a business standpoint, considering popular streaming services like Netflix and Hulu and Amazon, all of which feature high quality shows and films featuring a wide variety of diverse performers and roles, then perhaps I dare say the traditional major Hollywood studios are becoming too out of touch with what audiences really want to see. I mean, beyond the mega-budget comic book adaptations and Star Wars, of course. I don't know, it's just something to make you go, hmm. And finally, last bit of business here, I wanted to address a point that was brought up in the previous two episodes of Codex Prime, which deals with the whitewashed casting of Scarlett Johansson as Major Motoko Kusanagi in the upcoming Ghost in the Shell live-action reboot, produced by Hollywood, coming out next March. Now... I do like Scarlett Johansson, she's a very talented actress, and I do like the original Ghost in the Shell uh, anime, which, is, which still holds up 21 years later. Now the question is, will I see this upcoming live-action remake? Eh, probably. You know, on the subject, I did read a recent article in The Hollywood Reporter, which uh, reported that fans of the manga and anime in Japan were surprised by the backlash of the casting of Scarlett Johansson. 
Uh, according to The Hollywood Reporter, they said that many fans in Japan had assumed that the lead role in a Hollywood version of the film would be cast with a white actress anyway. Um, furthermore, uh, Sam Yoshiba, who's the director of the International Business Division at Kodansha, which is the publisher of the Ghost in the Shell manga, he went on to say, quote, Looking at her career so far, I think Scarlett Johansson is well cast. She has the cyberpunk feel, and we never imagined it would be a Japanese actress in the first place. He went on to add, This is a chance for a Japanese property to be seen around the world. Unquote. Well, regarding that last claim, I mean, I think he's about 25 years too late on that on that notion because, you know, Ghost in the Shell has been a pretty popular franchise since 1989 with the publication of the original manga and, of course, the aforementioned 1995 anime. I mean, it has its fans all around the world for the past 25 years, so this whole notion of Ghost in the Shell being a, a a chance for a Japanese property to be seen around the world is, you know, kind of silly. I mean, although maybe, to be fair, maybe he's making the claim that, you know, Ghost in the Shell, this live-action remake, would be a chance for new audiences, you know, to see it if they're not familiar with the manga or the anime. But even so, I mean, it, the, the, the casting of Scarlett Johansson as the main character it just rubs me the wrong way. And you know what? Some could argue that, you know, Ghost in the Shell, the whole story's conceit of body switching, you know, transferring one's consciousness to another body, does provide some justification, creatively speaking, for casting a white lead in the film. Some people can make that argument, but if that's the case, then why not why not just cast a Japanese lead actress in the role instead? And then if you wanted a name actress, you can cast Scarlett Johansson as like a, a clever cameo. But hey, what the hell do I know? The bottom line is this, you know, this whole notion that whitewashing equals profits needs to stop. Because it's insulting on all fronts. For one thing, it's insulting to artists and audiences of color for assuming that their images and experiences aren't relatable, despite the vast majority of the planet not looking like white Americans anyway. It's also insulting to white audiences for asserting that they can only enjoy and relate to white-centric stories and content. And if that's not what you'd call insulting one's intelligence, then I don't know what is. And lastly, whitewashing shows that Hollywood is financially, creatively, and intellectually cowardly, and ultimately, out of touch. Again, like I said earlier, streaming services provide excellent, diverse content that is embraced by all kinds of audiences, like Orange is the New Black, Transparent, etc., etc. So my question to Hollywood is, what's your excuse? And so, that about wraps it up for this week's edition of Victor's Corner. Once again, I thank you so much for tuning in. And once again, you can email the show at codexprimepodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to type in Victor in the subject line to have your email read in the next edition of Victor's Corner. You can also find the Codex Prime Podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and select episodes will be posted on YouTube. 
Once again, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Victor Omoyo, and I will see you when I see you. Be well, stay awesome, and take care.